The following interview took place at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. And now, a conversation with Holocaust survivor, Mr. Joseph Alexander, interviewed by Mrs. Esther Teichtel. Today, we are fortunate to meet and have with us a man who lives his life, Al-Kiddush Hashem, for the sanctification of Hashem's name. He is a Jew, a Yehudi, and for being a part of God's chosen nation, Mr. Joseph Alexander had to go through the fire of 12 Nazi concentration camps. He is a Holocaust survivor, tattooed in Auschwitz, in a place where the walls themselves breathe heavily, weeping for those that left in the morning and did not return at night. How did he survive? And Kenai Naharat Simlangayaran reached the young age of 101. Thank you. A Hebrew name shows on soul powers, and the Hebrew name given to him in his birthplace in Poland is Yidl Nayach. And like Nayach, when a world was destroyed, he is here, Baruch Hashem. We are now in the month of Av, a time when we commemorate Tisha B'Av, when the, both temples were destroyed and both World War I and II began. And yet, it's called Menachem Av, comfort. And today, we have comfort and renewed strength that you are with us and you can share your story with us. Mr. Alexander speaks Polish, Yiddish, German, and English. We are fortunate that today he will share his story with us in English and will take questions from the audience. So, Bekavod Rav, Yidel Nayach Alexander. Thank you very much. And it's, it's an honor for me to be here tonight to talk to you. Oh, my name is Joseph Alexander. I'm a Holocaust survivor from Poland, and I survived 12 camps. I come from a small town in Poland. My father was in business, and we had a very good life until 1939, when the Germans came into Poland. They divided Poland in two halves. One half was annexed to the Third Reich. The second half was Poland under German occupation. We lived on the part where it was annexed to the Reich. And as some of you know, in Europe, every town has a town square, and that's where all the business are. We lived in a town square. We were the second house in one corner of the square, and the third house was an uncle of mine. After a couple of weeks, they came to town, the Germans, and went around after my uncle around the square and told the people they have 10 minutes to get their possessions and get out in the middle of the square and they took them away. And so my dad, then the rumor started that they're gonna come back three days later and take the rest of us. 
So my dad said, we're not going to wait for them to come and give us 10 minutes. So we got out and rented a wagon, a deep wagon, and packed up most of the stuff from the store and a few pieces of bedding and a couple of pieces of furniture on top because from our part to the other part of Poland, you had to go to a border. So my, my father had three sisters living 25 kilometers before Warsaw, which was the second part of Poland. So uh, the wagon and uh, my father and mother and one sister and brother, and they left. I remained with two older sisters, and we were opening up a second wagon. In the meantime, the Polish people from around town were coming to town to buy anything they can get. So I sold the man a bicycle and a boat of shirt material. On the way home, he had to pass the police station, so he got stopped. And want to know where did he get that material. He said, I bought it. Then show me a receipt. He said, I don't have a receipt. Then bring the person who sold it to you. So he came back to me and said, you have to come with me to the police station. If not, they're going to come here. So I went with him and he asked me, did you sell him that? I said, yes. Why didn't you give him a receipt? I said, we in Poland, we didn't give a receipt. So I took the boat material, smacked the guy, and go, let go, and let me go. And I went back. My sisters waited for me, and we took off, and we left with the second wagon. Went to a little town named Bologna. It was 25 kilometers before Warsaw. We came there. Their life was going on still almost, almost normal. People were still in business, but everybody had to go to work. So coming there, I was there about two weeks, and I went to my first camp in 1939, to a camp where you work during the week, and the weekend you can go home. But the work we were doing, we were building a canal. You stayed in the water up to the knee, without boots, and that was in October, November. In Europe, that's around winter time already. So I've walked there for about five or six weeks, and the one weekend I go home, and I said, I'm not going back. So Monday morning, the police came to look for me, and they said, my father said, he's not here, he's supposed to be in the camps. So I stayed away from home for a while, and that was the time when they started to build the wall in Warsaw, where the Warsaw Ghetto was going to be. So after they were through building the wall, they came out and ordered all the Jews who live within 50, 60 kilometers in the surrounding area of Warsaw had to move into the ghetto. So we moved into the ghetto, and the life in the ghetto, you can't even imagine how terrible it was, because the area they picked out for the ghetto was a very small area, and they put in over 400,000 people. So I lived in the ghetto for about five months, and it was terrible. In the meantime, we found out that back home, since we left, nothing has changed. So my parents decided for an older sister, a younger brother, and I, we should go back home. So to get out of the ghetto, so we uh, had to pay off the guards at the gate to get out. And we got out, so we said, I'll take one street, and the sister and brother take another street. And we walk through town, and we meet on the outskirts of town. Should we show the picture? I've walked, no. 
I walked about two, two or three blocks, and my post teenager comes over, give me some money, I'm going to report you. So I figured I gave him some money, and I'd get rid of him, and I kept walking. But he got on a streetcar, and rode the streetcar for a few blocks, and comes over again, give me some more money. So this time he gave me some more money, and I changed the street, and I lost him. And I walked to the outskirts of town, and left, met my sister and brother, and we went home. Came home, and I say, it's the same, nothing changed since we left. But it lasted, I was three for three days. After being there for three days, they came out and order, all the Jewish men from 16 to 60 report to the schoolhouse. So I reported to the schoolhouse, and off I went to the camps, and I was going from camp to camp. And so the first camp I went to, we were building a dam, and we were cutting down some hills and filling up some little electric car we had, and filling them up, and they take them another place, and they dump it. The work we were doing was very hard work. We had to use picks to loosen up the ground so it can fill up those cars. And the food you were getting was a piece of bread in the morning, like this. And you went to work, and you got a cup of coffee, came back from work, you got a soup, which most of the time was from the peels of potatoes or spinach. Doing that kind of work, that food, you couldn't survive. The only way you could survive because we work with civilians. And if you manage to get a little extra food, that's the only way you could survive. So people were dying, there were camps, and there was in a city named Poznan. There were camps in the city and around the city. Same thing happened at other camps. People were dying, so they combined two, three camps into one. After a while, the same thing happened at this camp. So I, I kept moving from camp to camp. When I went to a camp I was working, we were laying cobblestones on the street. That lasted a short time, then I moved to a camp where we were building sewers. And all these camps didn't last too long. Then I went, I was a roofer. Then I moved to a camp where we were building an airport. I was near a railroad track. And so for different camps, I was in seven camps, and the train arrived, and it wasn't a passenger train, you know, it was a cattle car train where they put 30, 40 people into one boxcar. And the destination we were going takes about five to six hours. We were riding around for three days. No food, no water, no facilities. Finally, we arrived in Auschwitz. Came to Auschwitz, the there's a little town named Auschwitzim. So the, tra the train stopped downtown but later on, they built the trains to go straight into the camp. But that time, they didn't have that. So I stopped downtown, and we opened the doors from the train. About 30, 40 percent of the people were dead on the train already. Whoever could walk, you walked out, and you lined up in rows of five, and we met Dr. Joseph Mengele. He was called the Doctor of Dead. He selected people for human experiment or for the guest chamber. Dr. Mengel said there's six kilometers to walk to the camp. He's going to select people to go to the left, 
the people on the left are going to be taken on trucks. So he went through and picked out sick people, old people, young kids, and me, I was a, long, a young a little guy, it called me to go to the left. If I would come from home, I wouldn't know the difference, but I was already in seven camps, and every camp I was, had to go to work, I tried to get in with the biggest, strongest man. And here I looked around, I see sick people, old people, that's not the kind of people I like to be with. But my luck was, was after midnight. If it would have been daytime, I don't think I could have done it. When Dr. Mengele moved further down, I ran back to the other side. If I didn't run back to the other side, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Because the people on the left were taken on trucks, went straight to the guest chamber. So I ran back to the other side, and we walked to Auschwitz. I got a shower, came out of the shower, and I got a tattoo. You can hear, see it here. I got a tattoo on my arm here called 142584. From that moment down, you had no name anymore. This was your name. So I got a tattoo, and then there's Auschwitz II called Birkenau. I walked over to Birkenau. They're about three kilometers. Walked to Birkenau, and I was in Birkenau for about six, six, six months. Because then I saw Dr. Mengele two more times in Birkenau, but it was daytime and he was far away from where I was. After being there at that time, Birkenau, the life was terrible, very bad. I saw people running to the electric fence to get electrocuted. I saw people being beaten to death because they gave up. So it was very bad. And then was the time when the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was. After the ghetto uprising, they said they need a big transport, but they didn't want to take any people from Poland. They only wanted people from Hungary, Greece, Italy. But on the end, they were short about 300 people. They said, now we'll take some people from Poland. So I report, and I'm going back to the Warsaw Ghetto for the second time to clean up after the uprise. So I was in Warsaw for a short time, and then from there I went to uh, Dachau. In Dachau, I went to Dachau. Dachau was, uh, you know, one of the worst death camps. In Dachau, they had 12, well, there were 12, they selected 12 camps in the surrounding area of Dachau. Uh, from 1 to 12. So after being there for a short time, about two weeks, I went to camp number one, and I worked for a farmer digging potatoes. That lasted about three weeks. Then I was moved to another camp, a city named Landsberg, and it was camp number seven. It was a small camp, only about 150 people. But we came to Landsberg, we were a small group, we were in the camps over four years already. So we had the privilege of getting the better jobs in the camp. So friends of mine were the police in the camp, and some of them were the kitchen. And this is the only camp I was where women was in the same camp, but they were blocked off by wire fence, one corner of the camp, but we went to work together. 
And I got a group of 10. We were five girls and five boys. And we walked right outside the camp in the kitchen for the German guards. And there were two German men in charge of the kitchen, and they were very good to me. Every day I'm going back to the camp. After work, I took some food back from my friends. And we always had some soup left over. So we had some big milk cans. So I took a milk can, put it in. The next morning, people were going to work. I, so they had to pass by our kitchen. So I stopped them and I gave them some food. A couple of times, the officer in charge of the guards complained that I'm holding up the people going to work. So what my people told me, don't worry about it, let them talk, do what you're doing. So that lasted for quite some time, actually until April 28, 1945, all the 12 camps had to go back to Dachau. So I went back to Dachau, stayed overnight, and the next morning we got a coat and we went on a dead march. They're supposed to take us into the mountains in Germany the name, uh, a ski resort named Garmisch, and they're supposed to kill us in the mountain. However, we walked for about two days, and we knew we were not going to be walking too far, because we could hear the fighting. We knew that the American troops are not far behind us, and we saw plane, the airplanes coming and bombing the city. So I walked for two days, and we crossed the little bridge, and the little bridge was blown up, and the group was divided in two. I was on a half in a village named Koenigsdorf, and there was a little forest in the village. So they took us into the forest, and they asked the volunteers to take the sick people into the, to the village and put them into the farmers, the barn, and volunteers to come back. One of the volunteers was a friend of mine, and his, he was, his name was Joe Buddha. That's his, his here. And on the way back, so they found a dead horse in the snow. They cut up some pieces from the horse. And my friend came back with a piece of horse meat and he said, do something. So we were in the forest, so I made a fire and I was barbecuing. And that was the best meal we had in a long time. During the night, the guards disappeared. So the next morning, the German police came and they took us into the village and they disappeared. So we looked around the village to see what's, see what's, what's going to happen next. So we walked around to about between 12 and 1 o'clock. The American tank moved in and we were liberated. And behind the tank were the American troops. So tried to block off the village, not to let anybody out. But we were nine of us. We didn't want to get blocked in. We broke through. We were in the camp over five years already. We didn't want to get blocked in by the troops. So we broke through and started to walk to see where the next town is. So I walked for about one or two kilometers. There was a bakery. You went into the bakery. You got a bread. Everybody had a bread. You were okay. And we kept walking for a few, a few kilometers. And it came to a city named Bartels. And we see three American soldiers. They were Czechoslovakian descent, but they were so drunk, they walked, they couldn't walk. They were holding on to each other. And the clothes we were wearing, they recognized 
So they said, ask us, are you Polish? I told them, yes. Because they said, come on. We took, took, you to a, took us into a bunker, underground bunker, was a warehouse, so we changed clothes, took a backpack and put some food in. And then it was a big row of bicycles chained up, they broke the chain, everybody got a bicycle. And now we have to get out to find a place to stay, because when the American troops came in behind our tank, they brought all the people in there, and they made, there was an Air Force, German Air Force Bay, they made a DP camp. So we didn't want to go, so we had to go, got hopped over about three or four fences, and came to a German inn, was taken over by the American troops. And behind the, the, the inn was an empty house, so we took over the house. Stayed in the house about 10 days, then they came out. Anybody who lives outside the camp has to move into the camp. So I moved into the camp, and I was taken back to another camp in Munich. Uh, but uh, you were free. You wanted, you could live at the camp, or you can go any place you want. So I lived in the camp in Munich for about three days. And after that, we, a couple of friends of mine and I decided to go back to the city of Landsberg, where camp number seven was. And Landsberg was a DP camp, one of, the, one of the biggest DP camps in Germany. So I went to Landsberg, registered, and they gave me a room, and I stayed overnight. And the next morning, I moved out. I didn't want to live in the camp. Moved out about seven kilometers from town to went to the uh, farm, and I lived in the farmhouse. So I lived in the farmhouse about six weeks, and then I went back to Poland to uh, my hometown to see if any of my family survived. Because when I got out of the Warsaw Ghetto, I left my parents, two sisters, and one brother in the Warsaw Ghetto. Until today, I don't know what happened to them. Uh, they supposed I was told they were taken to Trivlinka. So I came back to the house, and I'm survivors living on second floor, and the first floor was some Polish people, and they said nobody of my immediate family survived. The only one survived was a cousin of mine, who, he was two years younger than I, he survived, and it's a different town. So I went to attack him, it was very bad in Poland, for survivors, when they came back, they killed a lot of survivors. Because they took the Jews out from the homes, they moved in. They didn't want to give up the homes, so they killed a lot of survivors. So I went, I picked up my cousin, and went back to Germany. And I lived in Germany for four more years until I came to the United States. So here, here I am. This is my liberation from Dachau. And there's one from Auschwitz. As you can see on the bottom, there's my tattoo number there. And here is one from Munich. And here it shows you that I was in the camps since 1939 to 1945. And this is a picture of how we lived in the camps, as you can see it. It's like shelves, and there was one section was for three people. On the second row here on the bottom, there's Elie Wiesel is on this picture here. 
So there are this year. And in 2015, I was invited by the German government to come back to Dachau to celebrate 70 years, the liberation of Dachau. Here, shown this here. And I spoke to Angela Merkel in Dachau. She was the Chancellor of Germany. There's another one. And now, and uh, over a month ago, actually last was the end of May and the beginning of June, I was back in Dachau. I was invited to come back to celebrate 78 years of the liberation of Dachau. So here it is now, and now, if you have some question for me, I'll be happy to answer you. Thank you very, very, very much. We're first gonna ask you, we know that in the beginning you didn't really speak about this story, what you went through. What inspired you to start speaking for the Shoah Living Witness, and then to lecture to groups and to share what you went through? Well, because there's we're just a few survivors left, not too many. And we are the one, we are speaking for six million Jews who got murdered. They got murdered, but not because of criminals that did anything wrong just because they were Jews. So they can speak. So we have to speak for them today and try to prevent another Holocaust. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on. There's Holocaust deniers. I call them, they're crazy. The Holocaust deniers. I talk to uh, hundreds of thousands high school students, and I tell them they're crazy not to listen to them because the evidence is still in existence today. You go to all the camps, and you see buses, people coming from all over the world to witness, to see the guest chambers in the ovens. So that's why I call the Holocaust deniers, they're crazy. So don't listen to them. As you said, as the Holocaust goes further and dimmer in memory, what message do you want to give to future generations? What do you want to tell them? What I'm to remember is, uh, they, I tell them not what had happened in, in Birkenau, where people gave up and ran to the electric fence to get electrocuted. So people were being beaten to death. They asked me when I talked to the students, did you ever think of giving up? I said, no, I never did. I never lost faith. I never stopped believing in God. And I say, I may have a bad day today, but I hope tomorrow it will be a better day. But never give up. That's what I tell them. And then I get letters from them, and they repeat the words I tell them. That's very, very powerful. What, if I can ask you, gave you the resilience to survive? Was there something from your childhood, something you learned in Cheder? <coughs> well, I, had, I grew up with a nice, with a, a Jewish Orthodox family. And I grew up very strict. So, and I had a very good young life. And that, I guess, I got the strength from my father. So that's why I wanted to survive. Made me keep to survive. That's how I guess 
I was fighting to survive whatever happened. I was I went through from camp to camp, but I was trying to get do try to stay away from getting any beatings or anything do anything wrong that it couldn't could be against me. So that's why I guess I survived. You really make the words uvacharta vachayim, like it says in Tyra. You chose life. What message would you give for people growing up, like now in our generation with COVID, post-COVID anxieties? What tips would you give them to lead a long life, to lead a good life? I think I know God wants me to survive because I was on two occasions. If I didn't get out of the Warsaw Ghetto, I would be going where my parents and sisters and brothers went, to Treblinka. Then when I came to Birkenau, and Dr. Mengele told me to go to the left, so I ran back to the other side. I said, God was with me, and he helped me. He wanted me to survive so I can tell the people what happened. I think that's how I survived. Wow. So we now we turn the mic over to our audience and ask if any of you have questions for Mr. Joseph Alexander. First of all, you look amazing. I mean... <laughs> Amazing. So um, thank you for your story. My name is Debbie. I'm from Long Beach, California. I have two questions for you. Um, the first, you were saying at one point toward the beginning, you had a job where you were working with civilians. I was curious what job that was. Well, any job we, I did, I worked a building, a building a dam or being a roofer or, or sewers. They were always civilians, they were in charge. They told us what to do. Okay. That's the civilians we work with. Okay. It wasn't just prisoners. There was also civilians from the Polish towns. That yes. Okay. And then last question. The, the pictures that you were showing, were you at the different camps, were you in them or they were just pictures of the camp? No, that was picture camps. I was in it. Okay, where? How did you come upon the pictures of you in the camps? I came up from the American troops who occupied Germany. After I was liberated, that's where the pictures are made. They're all stamped. They're made from American troops. Can I show this? Yeah, no. Let's see it. Ah. See on the bottom. There's a there's a stamp. There's a stamp right there, and all the pictures. This is a stamp that they gave him when he yeah. was liberated from the camps. That's all from the camps, yeah. The American, American troops. Then the American troops yeah. took this picture of him? Yeah. Okay. Hi, just another question. Um, in 1939, how, how old were you exactly? 16. And your siblings? My siblings were, I was the, we were six. We were, I had three sisters and two brothers. 
I was the second from the bottom. I see. Amazing. Thank you so much. You said you went to see your cousin. You heard you had a cousin that survived. Did you meet him? And what happened to him? Well, he survived. He, was, he lived and came here too. He passed away about, about, ten, ten, about 10 years ago. Two of you traveled together, stayed yes. together? Yes. Traveled together. We lived in Germany for four years together. After the war, what, what held you together after such a tragedy? Well, I had to start a new life. So I, I did what I had to do. I lived in Germany. I, I survived. I was 21 when I survived, and I was in Germany. It wasn't the country I grew up. And I had nobody, no family. I was all alone. So I had to make a new life for myself. So I did what I had to do to keep me going. So I lived in Germany, and I was doing very good in Germany. And then I came to the United States in 49. And here, here I, I had... I came to the United States, and I was the city name, and I've got people know Victorville. And I used to be, was on Air Force Base there, and during World War II, in 1946, they closed the base. 1950, the Korean War started, so they reopened the base because they mobilized the National Guard here, and then from there they were shipped out to the Korea. So I opened the base, so I got a tailor shop at the base. And then I got my cousin, and I was in Victorville for seven years. And then I came to Los Angeles, and I opened a store on Melrose, next block from Paramount Studio, and selling military uniforms. It was called the Los Angeles Uniform Exchange. And I was there for 37 years. And, uh, and sold the business and retired. If I can ask one more question. I read in an interview that you said that the best way to live a long life, besides eating a lot of salad, <laughs> you did say that, was not to keep a grudge. That's right. I don't keep a grudge. How do you manage that, having gone through everything you went through in your life, to live and go to sleep peacefully and not be upset or angry? Well, I say when you keep a grudge, you make yourself sick and it doesn't help anything. So why keep a grudge? Why just forget it? So I don't carry a grudge. And... Life goes on. Thank you so much. You left us with so much wisdom, especially now as we're going towards the month of Elul and the high holidays and forgiving people and letting go and living a good life and sharing positive messages. And Hashem should bench you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming and listening. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.